Welcome to another episode of Comedy Wham Presents with me, your host, Valerie, as we launch the first of our 2023 Moon Tower Just for Laughs Comedy Festival podcast series. My sometimes co-hosts, Miss Purrington and Mookie, are resting at home. ComedyWham.com is your place to go for features about all Austin comedy. In addition to podcasts, we bring you articles, album reviews, our advice column, Rochelle Takes on Comedy, a festivals page, and FPIA page where you can see the history of the contest. And you'll find all the best comedy shows on our events pages for Austin, Houston, and DFW. If you're a comic in those cities and want your show featured on the calendar, click Submit a Show at the top of our homepage to complete the short survey. Tag us on your Instagram stories and we'll share your show promo. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Facebook at Comedy Wham. Looking for ways to support all these resources we provide? You can donate to Comedy Wham on PayPal, Venmo, or even Patreon. Search for Comedy Wham on Patreon and check out our subscriber perks. Now let's get back to our podcast. Launched in 2016, the podcast project brings you funny people and their stories. As a fan, I like to delve into a comic's background and motivations, and we usually take a detour along the way. Consider the interview a way for you to get to know the folks that make the comedy scene as fascinating offstage as it is on stage. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us. Today, we are recording ahead of his Wednesday, April 19th appearance at the Paramount Theater. Get your tickets now. They are on sale. Uh, let's just add this one to the uh, pinch me moment uh, of our podcast episodes. You may know him as one of the stars of America's Got Talent or as host of Deal or No Deal or host of, and this is going to give it away, uh, how he does stuff with his daughter, Jacqueline Schultz. I first knew him as Dr. Wayne Fiscus on St. Elsewhere and in the, early, in the early 80s, which was his very first acting job ever. Uh, after years of being a stand-up comic, he landed the role after auditioning for what he thought was a sitcom. Oops. Uh, he was also the brainchild of the animated Bobby's World in the 90s, voicing both the namesake Robert Bobby Generic and his father, Howard Generic. He's publicly shared his ongoing struggles with OCD and ADHD, which he shared in his New York Times bestseller list memoir, Here's the Deal, Don't Touch Me. And now, Comedy Wham presents our guest, Howie Mandel. Well, thank you. Please sit down. That's not necessary. <laughs> You know, uh, St. Elsewhere was not my first acting. Ah, it, okay. That's Our 1982. I started in like 77, but I have the honor, and I'm glad that people don't know this, of doing um, Dick Wolf, who is the creator and of writer of uh, All the Law and Order and SVU. Mm -hmm. His very first script that he ever sold, I started. No. And it, 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 it's a movie called Gas, which is as good as it sounds, <laughs> with me and Donald Sutherland. And we did it in Montreal. Yeah, it's a comedy. And it, not, it wasn't funny. It's funny. Oh. It's a funny. It's a funnier story than it was. And, and uh, from time to time, I get together with uh, uh, Dick Wolf and we reminisce about uh, the horrible reviews that that piece of work has gotten. Okay. Now that you've said Dick Wolf. I don't know if I'm more excited to talk to you or to have second second degree of separation to Dick Wolf. I kid you not, me and my teenage son, we are on a full-on binge watch of Law & Order. I'm a massive Law & Order fan, true to the original, and we love watching it together and breaking down things. So this is 
Have you solved any crimes lately before they do? <laughs> no, I'm not that good. But I've rewatched oh. so many that I'll be like, you know, I'll, I'll be paying attention and then I'll, I'll be like, okay, eight minutes and I remember this one. I did a bunch of things before people even knew me. You know, I was a predecessor. I, I did a, um, um, I was on a show uh, called Make Me Laugh, you know, which is kind of what really launched me besides being dared to get up at a comedy club called Yuck Yucks. But I did make me laugh and I, and I got flown out here to California to do some talk shows because they saw me on there. And then do you know who Michael Nesmith is? Yes. The monkey. He was a monkey. Yeah. Yes. And his mother created whiteout, you know, the thing that, but, but he hired me because he had this idea. He was doing a show for uh, the Nickelodeon channel and he had an idea that if he shot a film of people uh, doing, playing their songs and doing great uh, movies along with their songs, then he can have comedians kind of introduce these little films. And it was me and Charles Fleischer. And if you look up something called Pop Clips, which is, it was called Pop, Clip, Pop Clips. It's me and Charles Fleischer. We are the first VJs because he gave it to Nickelodeon and they said, you know what, more than a show, we're gonna create a network where people are introducing vi this before videos of, of music. So I was, I was the first VJ ever and my pilot became MTV. Wow. Well, gosh, what a career. <laughs> no, it just means I've been around a long time. I feel you. Well, Howie, I have a, an official icebreaker question that I ask every single one of my guests. So you are not exempt from that one word to describe your past. Long. <laughs> okay. I, mean, I just said I was there before MTV was there. I was there before Dick Wolf was, uh, you know, solving crimes with Law and Order. I was before Law and Order. I've been. I was around before Tom Tom. So I, I, I long, long, this is, it's crazy. I never dreamed, you know, this was a dare. I never dreamed that I would still be, I didn't dream that this was going to be a career. I didn't pursue this. And uh, lo and behold, I would never have dreamed that 45 years later, I'm still showing up places doing what I uh, got in trouble for as a child. <laughs> yeah. And your journey has just been so vast and, You've dabbled in so many things. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to ask you a softball, and it's funny that the T-shirt you're wearing says "Legendary" because if you know what I'm, a, if you if you know the show that I'm referencing, this will make sense. Um, or no, actually, I'm thinking about how I met your mother. Legendary. Anyway, I'm going to start mm -hmm. with a softball. Uh, I All right. Anyone that's from Canada, I ask this question: Do you watch Letter Kenny? Yeah. And how true to uh, to Canada is it from your memories of growing up in Canada? Well, my memories of growing up in Canada aren't like don't, don't uh, um, coincide with anything I've ever seen or heard. I have a whole, uh, you know, and I've been very open about my mental health issues, but I lived a very different kind of insular, weird world but i you know that is a but that is a a show that kind of depicts what most people uh think of canada and it's it's really funny i'm a big fan of those guys and uh but my world was really different 
I didn't have any friends. I didn't even have a Kenny. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have, I had, you know, I, I was kind of by myself yeah. all the time doing things, repelling other people. So I didn't even have a sense of what the culture around me was. It was just me just trying to survive. And, and I feel like that's still it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I was a teenager in the eighties. So I very much remember the Howie Mandel of, you know, Johnny Carson appearances, stand-up appearances. And obviously your your mannerisms and your stand-up were very different in those early days when you were starting out. They're very mm -hmm. over the top. Uh, when I see you performing now, I've, I've watched your Howie Mandel. I'm going to get this wrong. Howie Mandel. Another special. It doesn't yeah. matter. You yeah. don't have to say the title. Well, uh, you know, the mannerisms I've always, and this is what has worked for me, you know, as I, as I alluded to a, a second ago, everything I was ever expelled for, gotten in trouble for, um, angered people with is what I seem to get paid with. And that was uh, for now. Yeah. So what was a problem as a child, it was, it became a career as an adult. And, and I just am me. And when I first started out as a, told you earlier, you know, I went in the mid seventies to a comedy club to go see, I had never seen standup comedy co comedy at all live, you know, besides on the tonight show. And I didn't aspire to be a comic, but uh, the uh, owner of the club, Mark Breslin said, is there anybody that uh, would like to, uh, if you, if you feel like you'd like to do this, you know, at midnight, we'll do three minute sets for amateurs. And, and uh, the people that I was sitting with went, you should do it. And I said, okay, without any thought, thinking that that was the joke that would be funny, that I'm not a comedian and there's no reason for me to even be on stage. And um, I thought the joke would be kind of be over when somebody goes, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel, because there's no reason to go, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. And I walked out and the uh, uh, after that moment had transpired, then it was just uh, this awkward silence of people, strangers just staring at me. And I got really nervous and really scared. And that's what you saw. It wasn't over the top. That's who I am. You know, so I went, okay, 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 okay. Yeah. All right. And I was trying to think of things and I was scared. And and they started, and I guess my fear was uh, somewhat entertaining and people would start giggling and I didn't know that's why. So I'd go, what, 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 why are you giggling? And then out of nowhere, you know, I didn't have anything to do. My hands were in my pocket and because I have OCD and I'm a germaphobe. I had rubber gloves in my pocket, as I always did, because if I was out in public, I would go to public restrooms and I wouldn't touch anything. But I pulled a rubber glove out and out of, you know, just sheer fear and uh, nothing to nothing planned. I pulled it over my head and I started breathing and the, the glove went up and down and people started laughing. And then I blew it up and it popped off and they roared and I went, good night. I ran off. And the uh, the. Uh, owner mark breslin said you got to come back tomorrow and i go for what he goes to do it again i go do what he goes do do what you did and my act became it was never been an act my act became uh doing whatever however i felt obviously at this age at this time i'm a, a lot more comfortable with my discomfort i like discomfort and like you will see at the uh, paramount if uh i should be lucky enough to have anybody that's listening to this in attendance um <laughs> I look at it like a, a giant party and I'm just trying to be the center of attention. So obviously, you know, there are things I can do and things that I prepare, but I love to be taken off the beaten path and have something happen in, a, in that moment, that time that will never happen again. And whether it's something technically going wrong, whether it's somebody, something happening or somebody yelling something out from the audience, that that's my 
jam. That's what I love to happen. And people are constantly coming up to me and going, I was there the night the lady with the red hat, you know, brought you a sandwich, you know, and that doesn't happen all the time. And if you look at any of my specials in the past, people still come up to me. I remember I, I did one in the round. I did one of my specials in the round and some woman got up to go to the restroom. And then I just stopped the act. You know, I obviously I had a planned act, but I, because it was a special, a cable special. And, and I, uh, because it was theater in the round, <clears throat> I got everybody up around her and had, I spent the next three minutes moving everybody around. So when this woman came down, she, she couldn't find her seat because nobody looked familiar and it's in the round. And for like 20 minutes, which we ended up cutting into five, it was my, my favorite thing in my special where you'd watch this woman come down. And I told the audience, like, don't don't even pay attention, but let's watch it. You guys can laugh and she won't know. And you don't have to listen to what I'm saying. But you'd watch her look at her ticket and then go back up and then come out another aisle and go down and look at everybody incredulously trying to figure out who was there. And that kind of stuff makes me laugh almost more than any joke could because yeah. it's real. Yeah. Well, and Frank's uh, figure in, in your podcast that you, you do with your daughter, too. Yeah, Frank's. You know, I, I do like pranks and I've done a lot of hidden camera and hidden agenda stuff. But it's the same thing as when I perform live. You know, if it I, I'm more fascinated by awkward, uncomfortable, real moments. You know, if somebody comes up to me and says, do you want to hear something funny? It's probably not funny. <laughs> or if they're telling you a joke about two guys walking to a bar, they didn't walk into a bar. And I don't know these two people. But if something happens in the moment and we could kind of, if nothing else, you know, cringe, there's something very, you know, for me, comedy is like a roller coaster ride. I love thrill rides and I love to be scared and I love to be mm -hmm. thrilled and I'd love to not know what's going to happen next and to be surprised. And I'm very, um, you know, inspired by when I moved out here in the 70s, as I was telling you about, you know, I watched Richard Pryor on stage each and every night put together what became Live on the Sunset Strip, which I believe is probably one of the, you know, best comedy specials ever and probably influenced some of the greatest comics of all, you know, people like Chappelle and, and Eddie Murphy talks about it. But, but um, it inspired me too. I don't know that anybody who watches me would see anything that remotely reminds them of, of Richard Pryor, except for the fact that, you know, Richard Pryor, I don't know uh, if people remember, but, you know, he got, he almost died. Uh, well, he is dead now, but he, uh, earlier in his life, he almost died from freebasing. And at this time in, in his career, he just had gotten out of the hospital. He was on stage. His neck was still bandaged from the burns. And it was the first time I realized, you know, he started talking and writing about what had happened to him. And he was started writing about how, you know, he was raised in a brothel and he had drug problems and, and uh, talking about the characters that he knew that were on the street. And yeah, he made it funny and entertaining, but it was his reality. And the truth is that I kind of implemented what I took away was, listen, if I'm scared to death and don't know what I'm gonna say or lost my place or bomb in a moment, then I just got to be authentic to that. You know what I mean? Like if I'm nervous and I don't know what's happening, I'm going to say, okay, okay, all right, let me try to think of something. Not to be funny. I can't do that now because that's kind of fake. You know, that, that would be an act. I've never really done an act. So when I show up, you know, if something goes wrong, then in that moment, I love to try to get out of that. That's like that roller coaster ride or if something 
is unexpected and it's never happened again. And I could surprise myself. I like, I like that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very cognizant that you have probably been asked all of the questions under the moon, but I'm going to try to be as creative as I can. You don't have to. Just the conversation is normal. You don't have to be creative. Just let's talk. Yeah. So one of, you know, you, you, you've obviously just talked about how when you started out, it was kind of from a place of fear and not knowing what was going on. And now you're at a point where you like the roller coaster ride, the unknown uh, situation on stage. So, what would would Howie of today tell the Howie at 23 years of age at that first show to kind of put him at ease? Well, I don't want to be put at ease. Mm. I, you know, I like the idea of. You know, I think Howie of that age informs the Howie of this age. People always go back and say, what would you ask of your, what would you tell your younger self? I would, I have to keep rem reminding myself of my younger self. You know, part of the um, issues that I deal with, I have uh, severe ADHD also, I'm medicated. But uh, part of that is not uh, kind of acting on impulse and not thinking of the ramifications. You know, uh, and that's why I was on stage. Right? You should go on stage. OK, um, I think that a lot of people would go, oh, that'd be nice. But you know what? I'm, and, and then think about it. I'm not a comic. I'm not prepared. Maybe I want to do this, but give me a week and then I'll come back and I'll do some work and I'll do. I just jump and do things. And, you know, and this was prior to Nike and their campaign of just do it. <laughs> but I always have to remember, I mean, it's not most people in life. I don't think thought is good. I don't think thought helps us. I think that most people go about their life thinking coulda, shoulda, woulda, and I just do it. And and uh, that's what I, I always have to tell myself when somebody approaches me with something. And uh, the culture tells me, well, why would I do that? Or is this important? Or should I be on that show? Or should I even show up? Or do I need? And then I remember that young guy that got up on stage at Yuck Yucks without any thought. It's just do it. And everything that I've done on impulse has really worked out well for me. And that's why, you know, you, you talked about at the beginning, I've done so many different things, you know, there was no reason for this wacky, energetic, young comic to be, uh, you know, to spend six years on a dramatic show acting with Denzel Washington, or even after that, doing that and doing stand up and then ending up as a Saturday morning cartoon. And then, even doing that, be a, become a game show host. And I don't even really understand what I do now on AGT. So, so th the thing is that I just do it. You know, they're very different skill sets. They're very different jobs. I don't need to do them anymore, you know, at this age and at this time in my life. I just love to do it, you know, and I love to be challenged. And nowadays, stand-up comedy is a real challenge, you know, to be honest, to to uh, kind of be authentic, to uh, trying to push the envelope in this time of political correctness and which I, I'm not politically correct. And I'm not, you know, and I got to always tell people that because the truth is you uh, half the things you named are great family co-viewing, but my, my standup is not. You don't want to bring kids to, you know, just because you like AGT or you like Deal or No Deal, you don't want to bring your kids to the Paramount to see the, the AGT guy, because I, I don't edit myself. Well, you, you mentioned Bobby's world and uh, what some people may not realize is that 
Bobby originated in your your comedy early eighties, like pretty early. Oh well, he. Uh, I mean, yeah, no, seventies, but but uh, late seventies. But I, I I did that voice when I was eleven years old. I was choking on a piece of cake, and that voice came. And and when I started doing it on stage as a baby voice, it it was uh, the the whole joke was he was incredibly inappropriate and filthy. And out of that little adorable voice, he was saying the most inappropriate little things. In fact, when my buddies who had the development deal at Fox approached me about doing a Saturday morning, we said we should do a Saturday morning cartoon with those with that voice. And I, I said, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know how to do Saturday morning and I don't know how to, uh, how to uh, write for that or perform for Saturday morning, you know, it, and, and we ended up just writing what we knew. And in fact, like almost every episode is based on a true story, mm-hmm. you know, and if it didn't happen to me, it happened to my kids or my uh, co-writers or their kids, you know, so we just started telling real stories and, and it ended up going for nine years and it's in 65 countries and it still plays today and you can still download it. But, you know, originally it was just a voice that I did in class and then it was uh, uh, a voice for hire. I was uh, Skeeter on the Muppet Babies, which is the exact same voice uh, with Jim Henson. And then I was uh, Gizmo in Gremlins, which is the same voice. It's the same voice. It's just Bobby garbling you know not speaking english so you know it, there's it kind of one voice got me a lot of work yeah i mean how epic is that that you know something that you just you're casually goofily doing it as an 11 year old turns into something that you know many people when i say the name howie mandel will say bobby's world they won't say other stuff they'll say bobby's right world. I find all of this amazing. I find the fact that my behavior, the fact that somebody <laughs> dared me in real life to get up on stage and I was just terrified and that became, you know, and I put a rubber glove because that, that I yeah. carry because I don't want to touch public restrooms became, you know, bought me my first house, yeah. you know, and the fact that I, I misbehave or break rules or act like an idiot is what, you know, uh, you're interviewing me about. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to turn serious uh, just a bit now. Uh, in your memoir, here's the deal: Don't touch me. Uh, you revealed that it, you you basically revealed to the world your OCD, ADHD on the Howard Stern show, one of the biggest yeah. podcasting platforms of the world. Well, I thought I was on a break. I thought we were on a break, you know, and uh, I didn't want to touch the door because he had another guy on that was uh, that was uh, touching himself at the same time and he touched himself and then he touched the doorknob and I couldn't get out and I asked somebody to open the door for me and they thought it was funny. And uh, I, I had to inform them that it's not funny. I'm about to pass out and I have anxiety and I have something called obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm medicated. I see a psychiatrist, please open the door. And I begged them and they did. And then as I stepped out in the hall, I realized that this was being broadcast. And, you know, I'm an older guy and I come from a different era. I think that there is still and and my little soapbox is to try to, uh, you know, dissipate the stigma attached to mental health. Um, you know, you can be in an office someplace in middle America and say, you know what, I can't. My back is killing me and everybody will hand you a card for their chiropractor and then you're off. Or you say, I'm going to my chiropractor or you got you got a toothache and everybody's got a dentist. If you say I just can't function right now. I got to go see a psychiatrist or I go need some therapy and I just can't be productive. I think it's not as 
easily as accepted, you know, to the masses. So at that time, I was just devastated that I had made this proclamation on broadcast internationally at the moment. And I thought I embarrassed my family. I embarrassed myself. I thought I was never going to work again. And not until I stepped out on the street and somebody came up to me and I was ready to run into traffic. I, somebody came up to me and said, uh, I just heard you on Howard. And I thought, oh, even more devastated. You better take off right now in the traffic. And I, and before I could take off, he, got, he just said, me too. Before me too became a movement that we all know about. But he, I said, what does that even mean? He goes, no, me too. I suffer too. I heard that. And I was so uh, kind of took a, a load off my shoulders to know that I'm not alone and it's the only one. And I felt the same way. And at that time, this is before email and before uh, uh, the internet. Um, it took weeks, but after a couple of weeks, I got flooded with so much mail of people just saying, I heard you on the Howard Stern show. And, uh, you know, it's really helped me, but they didn't realize that each and every one of these letters helped me. So that's what I real, and that's why I talk about it. Maybe somebody's listening to this podcast right now that has never opened up to anybody about, you know, their strife, their anxiety, their strife, their inability to be productive or even get through a day, how dark it is. And to know that you're not alone and there is help out there. And it's not, there isn't, it's not one-stop shopping. It's that, you know, you can go talk to somebody and it's not the right person. Or you could say something to your significant other and they don't get it, or your kid doesn't get it, or your friends don't get it, but you just got to keep talking and digging your way out of this hole and it's worth it. And I'm constantly fighting and dealing with, you know, mental health. You can't just put a bandaid on it and it's fixed, but, uh, I realize I'm not alone and everybody's got a, you know, a cross to bear and it doesn't have to be a diagnosable, you know, uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Like I, we're just not taught how to deal with pressure of becoming a parent, of uh, becoming single, of dealing, of being diagnosed with something, you know, a, a physical ailment, losing somebody, um, just the pressure at work. You know, these are all, they affect you mentally. So I don't think there's anybody alive that at some point isn't going to need a coping skill. I'm, I think that right now I'm coming to, uh, to Austin to help people with their coping skills. Because I will promise you, regardless of what you're going through, a couple of hours of laughter will make you feel better in the moment. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Do you, I, I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but, you know, one of them, my perception, I have, I would my son would say, I have OCD. It's never been diagnosed, but I, there are certain things that I will not, you know, allow on, on this earth. You know, I, I, I will not touch carpet with my bare feet. You know, that's, that's just a, a minor example, but there are other things. And uh, that's not OCD. You know, I do this. I, I work for this company called No CD, which is a, a, a phenomenal company. I speak for them because they have made uh, the idea of getting help accessible to anybody. It's just an app if, if yeah. anybody's interested or needs help out there. But the biggest problem with OCD is I think there's a lot of people that really suffer and can be diagnosed with OCD. Um, then there is the vernacular, like the, what, what you just described to me is really not OCD. You could be persnickety. You could have a, a real hang up about, you know, way the, the, the carpet feels on your feet or whether you believe that your shoes are putting dirt on your feet or you just want to keep everything in order. And it really bothers you when something's out of order or you just need to, you, you know, these are all obsessive compulsive disorder and I'm not a doctor and I can't diagnose somebody, but I will tell you this. 
it is, if you really have it, and I hope you don't, it is life altering. I, I, these thoughts about, um, whatever it is, whether it's a ritualistic thought that keeps going into my mind of having to wash my hands or I touch something wrong, I, I can't get by it. Yeah. I can't get past it so much so that it shuts down the rest of my life, the rest of my day until I uh, can access, whether it's my medication or this coping skill to move on. You know, I don't know if you know anything about Howard Hughes, but, you know, he's a very productive, wonderful person, brilliant guy who ended up at the end of his life, naked in the fetal position in his room, peeing into a bottle. And you go like, how does that happen? I, I can tell you honestly that I'm not, not that far from that in any given time. I, I just, I, I have coping skills and I am surrounded by uh, loving, caring people around me who help me. And it's much more than, you know, I go crazy if the pictures aren't straight or if my, all my files aren't in order or if I have to make a little calendar or I have to check everything off my list. That's persnickety. That could be a little neurotic, but it's not OCD. You know, if you have OCD, you know you have OCD. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's life-threatening and it's, it's dark and it's horrible. Yeah. So do you think that, uh, okay, so you, you've, you've, you're far more knowledgeable about it than I am. Is it a fair assessment to say that if you are OCD, either diagnosed or, you know, observed, that control of your environment is very important to you? Well, I think control of your environment is very important to everybody. You know, I think it's a very uh, uneasy feeling to feel like you're out of control. I don't think there's anybody alive that doesn't <laughs> obsess about being contr control something. Uh, with OCD, um, what's real kind of um, debilitating is the fact that, first of all, I don't think a lot of people that have it are diagnosed. So even if you think you have it, you should talk to people if you think you have it. But I think, you know, there's a dichotomy between your conscious intelligence and what you what you are uh, compelled to do. You know, you know, uh, I'll give you like a, just a small example that seems somewhat normal, but not. Uh, uh, and it's happened to me. Um, I've gotten into the car because I have an appointment and then I go, I didn't lock the door, which is a very normal thought. I get out of the car and I go check the door and the door is locked and I get back in the car. And then I can't start the car with going, you know what? I probably didn't check it enough. I probably didn't twist it hard enough. So now I get out of the car and I do it again. And then I get back in the car and I go, I don't know why. I think I did it at the same rate as I did the other one. I need to go out again. And then I go out again and I check it again. And then I get in the car and then I go, you know what? I probably loosened it and I bet, I bet I unlocked it. And then I get out again and I check it again. And then I get back in the car. My intelligence is telling me I've checked the, can I swear? Yeah. Can I swear? I, I've, I've checked, I've checked the fucking door five times. I don't, but I need to go out and check it again. Cause I'm really not sure. So I go back out and I will punch the doorknob so that I can feel the pain so that I can go and tell myself that I've done enough but I get back in the car and I go, no, I got to check it again. I don't believe that it's real, even though I know everything, every 
inch of intelligence tells me that it's okay, it's okay, but I can't, I'm compelled to check it again. I can't convince myself. And I get stuck in that, in that um, kind of skipping record. It's like a skipping record where, and I have checked doors over hundreds of times and I've been stuck for hours going in and out of a car up to a door and I've missed, you know, parties, I've missed meetings, I've missed, it's, it's insane. And I, and I know that. And yet, even with knowing that I can't stop that, you know, I, I'm known for not shaking hands and giving people the fist. It's just because I don't want to be triggered. I could shake your hand and I know intellectually, chances are, I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to get, even if you had something and I keep my hands away from my face, I won't get it. But I know that sometimes, and it's happened in my life where I'll shake somebody's hand and in my mind, it felt a little clammy and I want to go wash it. And then I go into the bathroom and I wash it. And then I go, you know what? I probably should have had hotter water. And I go back in and now I'm scalding it. And then I go back in and I said, I've missed a spot. I probably shouldn't have touched the soap. And I go back in and now I'm on this loop of washing my hands until they're raw and I can't get on with my life. It's, it's, and it's crazy to, get caught in that loop, but it's even crazier and more frustrating and debilitating to at the same time, understand what you're doing, understand what you're doing is insane and the inability to stop that insanity. And then it could be just like an obtrusive thought. You just keep getting a thought in your head. You have thoughts that go in your head, maybe a crazy thought that goes in your head, but then it move, you move on and then it's gone. Uh, sometimes with OCD, it's just a, it's just that it just keeps going. I just want to move that. It's dark. It's dark. I got a dark thought. I can't stop. I can't stop. Or it's a number. It's a ritual. You have to do these three things in a row. Otherwise you're going to die. It's like, it's really tiring and, and uh, debilitating. So I hope you don't have it, but I know that somebody who's listening to this podcast probably does and probably knows somebody that does. And all I say is it's worth the fight. And here I am, I'm going to be 68 this year you know, and I've been fighting all the time and I have a great life and a great family and a great career and uh, great opportunities. And, you know, I don't think anybody gets through this easily, you know, and shit happens to everybody. So, and the beauty is there's help out there and other people that are dealing with this and not that I'm plugging no CD, but they have really changed the game. No, I, I really appreciate it. And I too hope that somebody listening can relate, empathize, sympathize with, you know, talking about mental health, you know, openly and realizing that you might be an open mic or listening to this, hearing commonalities with what somebody as accomplished as you is struggling with and realize, okay, I can do it. I can get through this with help and get through it. So, I hope so. Let's pivot to something that you're, uh, Currently very well known for, and that's America's Got Talent, epic global uh, show. Uh, and I have to ask you, because I cover comedy, as a stand-up comic, are you harder on stand-ups, or do you think you're easier on stand-ups? That, that I, I think I'm easier on stand-ups than my cohorts who sit at the desk with me. I think that people don't understand stand-up comedy. And they don't understand that on such a surfacey level, you know, especially when you're on America's Got Talent. But this is what I say to the comics. You know, I think there's a lot of comics who, who kind of shy away from it because, listen, comedy is hard enough as it is. 
to to elicit laughter from an audience but and then on top of that they they could get dinged publicly where if somebody like Simon doesn't like what you're saying or Heidi doesn't understand it or or whatever but here's what I will say to them first of all the average person doesn't realize what goes into comedy you know you see a guy or a group on uh AGT and they're swinging from the ceilings and they light themselves on fire and they're, you know, they're hanging up by one foot, you know, three stories in the air. And then they, and then we clap and they go away and they go, now here's Bob, you know, and Bob just comes out he stands there and he tells stories about his marriage and how he went shopping. And I feel like sometimes in the context of the whole night, people don't realize what it is. And I'm always one to say, Hey, listen, there is nothing you know, you, you gave a standing ovation to somebody who came out here and sang a song they didn't write, played a guitar that a lot of people can play. You know, you can walk into a Ramada Inn and see what you just saw right here. Or you can go to the circus and see what you saw right here. But the ability for somebody to kind of share their sensibility with an audience and have the ability to make a larger group than just the people sitting around the Thanksgiving table make them laugh, relate, and kind of, you know, emote from what you're saying is harder than any of the other, you know, talent lanes you see. And and I, I constantly say that. But even more importantly, what I try to tell my fellow comedians is you've got to come on the show. And I'll tell you why. Nobody should come on our show in any capacity to win. Because I don't know what winning really is. What is winning? Uh, listen, I would love to get the million dollars if I was going on. I'd love to get a chance to to play in Vegas. But ultimately, anybody who shows up on that stage is just showing us what they want to do. And the way to do what you want to do is to garner an audience. And the fact that you are standing up there in front of, forget about the two or 3,000 people and the four of us idiots sitting at the, at the desk. You're sitting in front of guaranteed, you know, we get a billion clicks a year on YouTube, not to mention the seven or eight million people who watch it same day. But then after that, every, you know, uh, video goes to minimum a million to five million. Where are you going to get that kind of an exposure? And if everybody in the room didn't like what you were saying, but you know what you do and who you are, it's just a platform. And that's like, you know, and I use the example of Jennifer Hudson on, you know, American Idol. I ah. mean, not only did she get taken off, but I thought they were really rude to her, you know, and, and but she does have a great voice. She is a great talent. And then she ended up, you know, winning an Academy Award. She has her own show on TV. And it goes back to what my younger self would tell me. And that is just do it. And if you have an opportunity, there aren't a lot of places where you can go and do what you do in front of that many people. And it's not about me. It's not about Simon or Heidi or Sophia. It's not even about anybody in that room. How big of an audience can you garner? If you were talking to 7 million people, I promise you, the next week when you are at Yuck Yucks in Toronto, that room will be twice as full. There'll be twice as many tickets. You will be making more money. Just do what you do. And I think people over overthink it. So the fact that there is a platform on national TV right now, not that that's the best. You listen, 
ultimately, I think you should always do what you do. People like Ari Shafir, who uh, created an amazing special and then didn't give it to any of the streamers and put it onto YouTube and garnered the world. He's playing out and selling out theaters everywhere. I mean, that's the way to do it. But that doesn't mean he should negate doing AGT. He probably has to because his material isn't <laughs> passable for network TV. But if you can... If you could do it on network TV, you should at the same time as doing it on YouTube, at the same time as doing it on TikTok, at the same time as doing it at the mothership there in, in town for oh, Joe's Club. the Austin comedy scene. Good for you. I do. I think the Austin comedy scene is the, is the comedy scene. I think, you know, when I started out the comedy, well, I started out after that. I think the comedy scene started in New York in the 60s and early 70s. And then when Johnny Carson moved in the 70s to LA, the whole comedy shift was to LA. And that's because at that time, not anymore, but at that time, the Johnny Carson show was the litmus test for making it in comedy. If you got on The Tonight Show, then you ended up with a sitcom or you ended up with an HBO special, you ended up with something like that. And now I feel the shift is, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be in LA. You can be in your own home and do things, but if there is a place that is a Mecca. I believe it is Austin. I believe Austin has that kind of um, uh, shift in pop culture, you know, for people like Joe and other people that I know that are doing their podcasts out of there, like yourself, and uh, and doing comedy out of there. And there's people that are doing their podcasts out of there that are touring, you know, Bert Kreischer and all these guys that are touring and playing arenas, you know, without you know, the the Laugh Factories and the comedy stores and the Tonight Shows and that, you don't need that anymore. Yeah. Speaking of podcasts, uh, I really enjoy your your podcast, Howie Mandel Does Stuff with Your Daughter. Uh, Thank you. I went through your history and I was so excited because I found that we had one comic in common that we had both <laughs> interviewed uh, and that was Brad Williams. And I love Brad. He's fantastic and, and you were very, very complimentary to encourage people to see him. I've seen him every chance he comes to Austin. I, I watch him. He's phenomenal. Well, he's coming in. He'll be there for JFL. Yep. Yep. He will. You know, I'm one of the, you know, I'm one of the, JFL is, is I'm one of the partners. Ah, okay. I, so I, you, I, you I made the merger happen. You helped make that uh, Moon Tower. Yes. Happen. Moon Tower and JFL is my, is my company. You know, we started in Montreal. And uh, so I've been in this business for a long time and I've seen a lot of people before they were known become household names. Yeah. And that's why I'm excited that we merged JFL with Moon Tower because I think that now, you know, Austin is has become and probably for a long time. I think before comedy, it was a, a great launching pad for music, you know, uh, yeah. and, and film South by Southwest and all these great festivals. And it is now for comedy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, do you have, do you have a dream guest? I mean, I know you have probably talked to everybody under the, under the moon, but do you have a dream guest that you'd love to have on? Um, I, I love everybody. I want to talk to anybody as everybody, you know, I do. I don't, I really don't. There's not one more than the other. And, you know, we're kind of new. We've been around for just over a year now. And everybody I've asked to be on has come on, you know, and and uh, 
So when I'm in between doing AGTs and touring and doing JFL stuff and in Austin, when I'm home here with my daughter, I will call up uh, Tuesdays, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube, um, we present one of my buddies, Yeah, you know? One of the things that I love about Speaking it. Speaking of Austin, I had uh, I had Mike Judge on. He's ah, amazing. Local local guy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I've known for years and years and years. Yeah. Uh, for anybody that hasn't listened to to your podcast, I want them to know that you are so curious about your guests, and it's it's really cool to listen because because I also interview comics. I have this curiosity, and I just love. You know, I love hearing other people's uh, demonstration of curiosity. Um, well, I think that curiosity is the fuel of life. I think that, <laughs> you know, when you're, you're it really, I, I really believe that, you know, I'm an older guy and, and, and a lot of people my age, if you look at the difference between somebody who's kind of out there, you know, I mean, out there being working and being productive, it's only curiosity. You know, when we are kids, you're curious about everything. That's what popular culture is. You know, pop culture is like you look, you listen to whatever's streaming and that's the music you like. And you, uh, you know, you, you watch, uh, you're online and you find the comedy that you like, or you go out to the clubs that you like, or you find the fashion that you like, or you know what the, you know, what the culture is. And then a lot of people reach a certain time in their life, in their age, and you would, you probably notice this in some of your parents, they're not interested anymore. And that's when you hear statements like, that's not music. We had music, but it's not really their music wasn't better than you. they're just not interested. They're not curious. They don't get it. It's not speaking to them because it's speaking the, the words and the lyrics and the sounds are what is happening today. They're not curious enough to be, you know, you find a haircut you like and then that's what you stick with. You find the fashion you like and that's what you stick with. When you're young and curious, you're you you don't dress today like you dressed 10 years ago. You know, you don't listen to the music that you listened to 10 years ago. You're not even doing the same thing that you did 10 years ago. You know, I'm listening to a podcast 10 years ago. You didn't know what a podcast was, right. you know. So what I'm saying is curiosity is what moves you on in life. I don't think there's anything wrong with not being curious. I think that's a, con a conscious choice. I am curious. I want to know how things are done. I'm I sit with my son, my son produces my podcast and, you know, and I live online. I live <laughs> in um, on every platform and I'm fascinated and curious about when I see something has a hundred million clicks and I watch it. I'm telling you, there's so many things where I go, oh, is this funny? Is this great? Tell me why this is great. And, you know, even sensibility and humor has changed from when I from when I started, sure. it really has. But what hasn't changed is authenticity. If you are real and you are true to yourself, people will relate with humanity. If you're trying to be funny, you used to be able to do that when I was young, just try to be funny because you could, you could find a formula or jokes or things that might hit home. But nowadays, because of the advent of our digital world, because we have access to be in everybody's house and people are vlogging and people are streaming and people are doing things, they can smell when it's not authentic, when it's not real. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this segues perfectly into my next question, which we're in the home stretch. I won't keep you much longer. Um, what advice would you give to a comic starting out? 
I, I get, I started out with that right away and that's just do it. Just do it. There's no, there's no reason not to do it. Even if you don't think it's going to work, even if you don't, that's what I'm saying. If you have something you want to try, show up, just keep showing up every place and doing it. And if you truly believe that what you have is in, in your heart of hearts, you, you like it and it's making you laugh and it's good. Just do it. Even if it, bombs one time i don't think giving up is what stops you you know it's like i was a hockey fan and wayne gretzky said you miss every shot you don't take and i think that's a great template for life too you yeah. know I'm, i gotta tell you as somebody who's done a bunch of specials and things like that when i was building the specials and watching richard Pryor build his you know so many nights he'd have a piece and i watched it each and every night be honed into something before it even became something. And I'd go, wow, he must see something in this because this was kind of a dead area. That doesn't work. And then come back two weeks later and that same piece is just grown into something. I think that just do it and just do it, whether you're putting it on online or whether or you're doing it on TikTok, you're doing it, just, just don't, never say no. You know, no is N-O, which is the first two letters in nothing. Wow. Nothing, nothing comes from no. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody great who you don't know. And I've said, hey, I can get you on AGT. You got it. You'll kill. You should come on. And they go, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And I'm thinking, like, even if you did that and it went terribly, your career wouldn't be in any different of a place than it is today. It can only be better. And even if it doesn't, even if it's not better and it's the same, maybe with that different experience, you learn something. And that's what life is. You know, you've got you to experience. And I'm telling you, as somebody who's sitting here in their late 60s going, you know, the one thing I almost turned down and my wife told me to uh, do and, and was deal or no deal. <laughs> I've heard this. And at and, and, and 2005, no comics were doing game shows. In fact, the game show was the punchline. You know, you didn't want to do that. Just like movie stars didn't want to do commercials. You know what, I, you know what I'm saying? Comedians yeah. didn't want to. That was you made fun of that. The guy in the suit reading the questions and the trivia. And nobody really had done one before. Uh, you know, the last one that had done it was Groucho Marx when he did Your Bet Your Life. But for years and years and years, nobody had done it. And I didn't even get what this game really was. Just opening up cases and what can I do? And nothing has opened up the door more for me in any one project and deal or no deal, you know, and that I ended up selling out arenas again. I ended up like right before, you know, I was selling big tickets in the early eighties and, and, you know, into the, uh, into the late nineties. And then by the time 2005 came out, I couldn't sell out a, you know, half a comedy club. And I was sitting on folding chairs and casting offices trying to get five lines and under and uh, you know, deal or no deal just relaunched my career. Wow. Yeah. I, I love it. No, nothing comes from no. Very. Right. All right. I'm going to ask you my final question before I go through our, my closing. One word to describe your future. Hopefully it's the same as the first question. I hope it's long. We're thinking. <laughs> I hope. So we bookended with long. That's perfect. I mean, this seems like such a silly question to ask, but is there anything else that you want people to know about you other than they need to show up Paramount Theater Wednesday, April 19th, get your tickets at ParamountTheater.org. Anything else you want people to know? No, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a mystery. <laughs> 
that's a wrap on Comedy Wham! Presents Howie Mandel. We hope you've endured learning about how Howie got to be the comedic genius that you heard today just as much as I have. This has been Comedy Wham! Presents Howie Mandel. I'm Valerie, and that's been funny. Thank you, Howie. Thank, thank you for your time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.